Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Catalyst. Uh, my name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor here. And uh, I wanted to start out talking about rules today uh, because I, I actually really love rules, which I think is surprising to most people. Uh, when I was a kid, I don't know if they still do this in school or not, so kids help me out. We used to have to do these worksheets where, you know, you'd have it and there'd be like 10 instructions at the top and a big blank space at the bottom. And like, number one, it'd be like, draw a sun. So you'd, you know, do a little circle with a little line and everything. And you get down to like number six and it'd be like, don't draw a sun, uh, draw a moon instead. And this, I guess, supposed to teach you to read all the instructions before you started or whatever, right? Um, I never did very well in those worksheets because I just wanted to get going, right? And, 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 and follow the rule stuff. Uh, I think a lot of people are surprised when uh, I say that I like rules. Uh, probably I don't look like much of a rule follower, I guess. Pastor with lots of tattoos and all that. Yeah, whatever. Um, but, but, you know, we were talking about board games earlier, right? And I think, you know, board games only work when, when you have rules. And I think even, or maybe especially some of the games that have a really complex rule set, uh, it's not clear why the game is fun or even how the game is fun until you really start to have a deep understanding of all of those rules and you see how they sort of guide you into this experience of the game. Uh, it's actually, I don't know how many of you have ever played the game Apples to Apples. It's why I despise that game because in the rules, it says you're supposed to choose the card that's most like the main card and what people, everyone does when they play this instead is they choose a card that the judge likes the most, right? So like if I'm the judge, everyone knows I like Batman. So like play a Batman card, whether or not it has anything to do with the card, the main card, right? Um, so it's not really apples to apples at that point. It's apples to judges, which is not the name of the game. And it just drives me crazy because of course, if we all played by the rules, I would win um, and I never win. So that has nothing to do with why I don't like it though. Uh, no, I'm kidding. All that to say, I really like rules in games and even something like cooking, right? I love to cook and I love to experiment and try new recipes. So when I get a new recipe and try a new recipe, I actually follow the recipe as closely as I can. Uh, the first time or the first couple of times I make it because again, I'm trying something new and I kind of want to understand how this complicated dish becomes, right? Like, what are the things that go into making it and making it taste the way it should? Once I learn it, I may feel freer to experiment. Uh, we might say break the rules or bend the rules a little bit or, you know, kind of put my own spin on it. Uh, but I don't feel like I can do that well until I really understand what this dish is supposed to be. And that's, that's for me, that's what the, the rules of the recipe help me do, is they help me understand the big picture. And that's, I think that's why I like rules so much, uh, when rules are good, when they are doing what good rules are supposed to do, they actually guide us into a space that I don't think we could get to on our own. Uh, they actually help us see a, a bigger picture, a bigger vision of what this could be than we would otherwise see. And so I want to talk about rules today because I think when people think about religion, uh, usually we think about rules as part and parcel of that. And uh, I obviously think we could all imagine some situations where rules and religion have been abused uh, or where people have been told to follow things just because. Um, and I want to I push back on that a little bit today and say that when we do that, we're really misunderstanding what, uh, what God's 
guidance for us is, the things that we end up calling rules, right? And so I hope that by the time we get to the end of today, we will have a new and deeper appreciation for the way God gives us the things that we call rules, that we're also going to call boundaries or uh, permissions and prohibitions. We're going to refer them by a few different things today. But my hope is that by the time we get to the end of the day, we're going to see a fresh vision for uh, who God is and why God gives us these, uh, these rules and regulations and guidance and uh, boundaries that, that we end up getting, you know, calling religion. Uh, I hope that we'll be excited by the kind of life that God is calling us to and, and be able to trust that God gives us these things not uh, to control us, but as a way to lead us into real freedom. Uh, so if you're guests with us today, I want to say that we're so glad that you're with us. We hope you feel welcomed and encouraged and challenged here today. Uh, we will be receiving communion in a little bit. So if you're in the building with us, hopefully you got one of the communion cups from Sarah as you came in the door today. Uh, if not, you can go grab those uh, here in a couple moments. Uh, if you're uh, virtual with us, please go ahead and grab something to eat and something to drink. We're not real picky and choosy about what those are. Uh, uh, again, it's more about being able to participate with us when we receive communion later. And for now, we're going to begin by singing together and by celebrating the God who brought us all together today to celebrate and to grow together. So I'm going to hand it over to Nathan and Chanel and invite y'all to stand with me. We are in the beginning of the season of Lent, which is a season where uh, we are invited to travel with Jesus to the cross. So Lent is a season of introspection, of reflection, where we uh, really are trusting in God's love for us to be open and vulnerable and to allow God's Holy Spirit to search us and reveal any sin that is in us, both personal sin and corporate sin. Uh, so it is a, it's a challenging season, but it also, I think, more than any other season in the church year, has the potential to be incredibly liberating and healing if we will, if we will participate. And so our series this year is called Broken Promises, and we are doing, uh, each, each week we'll be taking two different uh, texts from Scripture. We'll be doing one from the, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible that traces God making a covenant with God's people. And we'll talk a little bit about how God's people have failed to keep that covenant and, and a little bit of you know, reflection on what it looks like today when we fail to keep that covenant. Uh, Then we'll jump into the New Testament, and we'll look specifically at the life of Jesus, and we'll look at how Jesus was faithful to that particular covenant, and what it looks like for us to participate in Jesus's faithfulness as we we seek to become whole and flourishing together. So uh, today we're beginning in Genesis chapter 2. So if you you have a Bible, turn over there or click over there, however you're getting there. If you grab one of the Bibles out of the back, this is on page 3. You don't have to go very far before you get to Genesis 2. And if you've been around Catalyst very long, you know that Genesis 2, is, uh, 2 and 3 are some of my favorite passages in Scripture. Uh, so the, the real discipline for me this morning is going to be, able to, is going to be saying less, because uh, I really would just love to just you know, stay here for three or four hours in this text. And we're not going to do that. Don't worry. We're not going to do that. I'm going to be disciplined and thoughtful today as we, as we go through and look really at the big picture of what's happening in Genesis 2. So when you read this passage, you really get uh, here the original human vocation, what God called us to do. Uh, And of course, that comes with some particular rules associated with it. So as we read this, uh, I want to look at those. Let's go ahead and read in verses uh, 15 through 17 of Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and to watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, except 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of its fruit, you are sure to die. Okay, so there we have the first human vocation, right? God places us in the garden and our job is to till and to keep the garden, right? To essentially garden along with God, uh, to, to, to tend to the earth and then to protect the garden, right? So, you know, from weeds and pests and that kind of stuff. And then there's also this rule that comes along with it, right? God says there's this one tree in the middle of the garden and you, you can't, whatever you do, you can't eat from that tree. Now, again, I think typically when we look at religion, this is what we think of, right? The rule. Yeah, of course, God gives us right away. What does God do? God gives us a rule. Don't eat, don't touch that tree, right? Don't eat from it. Uh, what, we're, what we miss though, I think when we focus on that is that there is tremendous amount of permission that comes along with this rule. Because what God actually says is, you may freely eat from any tree in the garden, except for this one, right? So, so it's not just that God is giving us a rule that says don't eat from this one tree. God is also giving us an incredible amount of permission to say, look, uh, you have tremendous freedom to enjoy the entire garden, except for this one tree. So there, there, there is prohibition, but there's an incredible amount of permission. And I think that's what we miss because it's hard for us, I think, sometimes to believe that what God actually wants for us is freedom, that what God created us for is freedom. Uh, and again, I think a lot of that is probably cultural. We look at this and we say, well, you know, this isn't real freedom because when we think of real freedom, and I'm putting that in scare quotes, uh, what we think of is unrestricted individual liberty, that I should be able to do whatever I want whenever I want, however I want. So if you're telling me that there's one thing that's off limits, you're restricting my freedom, and it's not real freedom. And again, that, that, that is a cultural idea that comes out of our uh, hyper-individualistic culture. Uh, because Genesis 2 disagrees strongly with that. Genesis 2 says that uh, the vision for flourishing that comes from our Creator is not unrestricted individualistic liberty. It's actually this blend of permission and prohibition. This, this uh, limitation that is placed on us uh, that then also leads to these greater freedoms. Again, you can eat uh, from any tree in the garden except for this one. Now, the problem is, of course, if you know the rest of the story, you know that the, the first humans, the man and the woman, uh, do not listen to God. They do, not, uh, they do not trust that this vision that God has for their flourishing will actually lead to their flourishing. They decide to take matters into their own hands. And I want to read a little bit uh, here uh, from this next bit. This is in, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So the text tells us that the serpent was the shrewdest or the cleverest of all of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And one day the serpent asked the woman, did God really say that you must uh, not eat from the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? And the woman replied, of course we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, right? There's that permission. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it, and if you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. 
The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Again, there's so much that it would be so fun to talk about here, like about what's going on with that talking snake or uh, the specific way that the woman feels the temptation. But uh, in the interest of what we're talking about today, I want to hang out still at the big picture and say, you know, at, at the end of the day, what happened here is the man and the woman chose to disobey God. They clearly understood God's prohibition. You know, you can eat of any of the trees in the garden except just not this one. And they chose to say, we think that we know better. We think that God's rule is not the thing that will lead to the greatest flourishing for us. So we're going to ignore that. We're going to disobey and we're going to eat of the fruit. And what happened as a result was instant fracturing. The the immediate consequence was that they felt shame and that they began to create divisions between themselves and God. They, uh, in, the, in the passage right there at the end, they, they sewed clothing together, right, to put barriers between one, themselves and one another. And then if you keep reading a little bit, you actually see that when God uh, shows up for, for uh, their, morning constitu- or their evening constitutional with the man and the woman, uh, they actually hide from God. They're, they're ashamed and afraid of what God is going to do. So, again where we live in a culture that programs us for rampant individualism, what we see here from God, from this vision that God gives us in the text for human freedom, is something quite the opposite. That God says that true freedom, true human flourishing, is only found in the blend of freedom and boundaries of permissions and prohibitions. And it's when we can rest into both of those things and trust that the way that God gives us is the way to life, that's where we truly have uh, the freedom that we were created for. And I think the most difficult thing about this is that that freedom is going to look different from the freedom that our culture imagines for us. So this is where when we start talking about faith as a countercultural experience, right? Um, it's not, it, this, isn't a, this isn't a thing where we're just sort of saying like, oh, let's, uh, let's sort of tweak our cultural definition of freedom, right? We're saying, no, 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 no. Like actual, uh, the, the, the rampant hyper-individualism that our culture encourages is actually poisonous to it. It's actually toxic to us. It actually creates fractions and divisions and wounds. And this is where as a people of faith, we have to stand against that and resist that and say, um, yeah, about the worst thing you could possibly tell someone in our world today, in our culture today, is that uh, we should have a boundary. We should have a limit on our freedom. Um, That's the quickest way to get people uh, in an uproar, right? But that's exactly what Genesis 2 and 3 is saying, is without, without boundaries, without prohibitions blended with permissions, uh, we don't have a, path, a real path to flourishing. So uh, I want to invite the worship team back up because I want us to respond in song uh, to this idea, to this idea that what God calls us to is faith, is trusting, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's not clear, uh, even when it seems as though it's running contrary to the way we were raised or to the culture that we find ourselves in, uh, God's vision 
for our life, for the good life, is one that is accomplished through faith, through trusting that God's rules and God's ways and God's prohibitions and God's permissions are the path. I think we need to address uh, a certain reality, which is that there are lots of cases that we can probably think of where pursuing something uh, that's good for me is actually in my own best interest, right? Uh, that, that being selfish will get me what I want or things that I need. Uh, that, that certainly has been the case historically, uh, and I think it is the case uh, in the present day. We're focusing on me or the, the me that, that is my circle, right? Me, my family, my group, my ethnic group even, my nation, whatever, my, you know, the, the, the me. And pursuing the things that put us on top, uh, or certainly the elevators over other people, can feel good, can feel powerful, can feel right. Um, but, but again, the truth is it's never good for the we if the we means all people, right? And so we see this historically, right? We see this in the scriptures where uh, it was you know, good for the Egyptians that they had enslaved the Israelites, uh, but God liberated them, right? It was good for Babylon uh, to build an empire that destroyed and oppressed God's people. It was good for Rome when they spread out across the Mediterranean and ruled over uh, even, you know, even the Holy Land. And again, when we look at today, it's, it, it benefits, uh, you know, racist societies benefit the people that are in the privileged racial group at the expense of people of color. Uh, patriarchal societies benefit uh, people like me, right? Even as they are uh, detrimental to women and queer folks and stuff like that. Uh, ableist uh, societies are good for able-bodied people, even as they are not good for people who uh, have any kind of disability or are neurodivergent in any way. Um, and we see that again and again and again on the macro level throughout history and across our world today, that when you privilege a certain group of people at the expense of others, uh, it does benefit. Uh, and, and it can feel good for the people who are part of that privileged group to have that extra position or extra power or extra access, uh, even as it is at the expense of people who are more vulnerable. Um, and so I think this is why we need Jesus's example here in Matthew chapter 4. So if, uh, you can flip over or turn over or click over in your Bibles to Matthew 4. Um, this is the story of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness. And so in the, in the sort of the plot of the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the ones that all are sort of telling the same story together, you have uh, Matthew and Luke, you know, they have a birth narrative of some kind. We get our Christmas stories from. Then you skip to Jesus as an adult. And uh, in the most, in, uh, for the most part, you have his baptism, right? That's how Mark starts out. That's what we have in Luke 3 and Matthew 3. Uh, and then immediately following Jesus' baptism, which is where we could, we could say that this is where he receives his vocation from God, right? The, the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and, and this voice from heaven says, you know, to listen to Jesus, that he's God's son. And then immediately after that is this temptation narrative where it says that uh, God leads Jesus into the wilderness, into the desert places uh, for 40 days, which is why also, you know, why Lent is a 40-day experience, right? Where we're mirroring Jesus's experience in the wilderness. And during this time, he faces temptations. And uh, we're going to, you know, just kind of lightly touch on each of the temptations, but it, it's worth pointing out, and again, I don't think this takes a rocket scientist to figure this out, uh, that if he had said yes to any of the temptations, they would have been very good for him personally. 
right? But what we see again and again in these temptations is Jesus rejecting the easier path, the path that benefited him in favor of trusting God, even though that meant a more difficult path uh, because it was the one that kept him in solidarity with the rest of humanity, uh, which is ultimately what makes Jesus worthy of his sacrifice on the cross. So uh, I just want to read through uh, these, these first 11 verses here in Matthew chapter 4 and, and uh, again, have us listen to Jesus's faith-filled nose to these offers to benefit himself. So beginning in verse 1, Matthew tells us, then, again, that's after the baptism, right? Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, again, this is a totally reasonable temptation because part of Jesus going into the wilderness is mirroring when uh, God's people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years after they were liberated from Egypt. And during that time in the wilderness, God provided for them miraculous bread. So what the de- it's not like the devil was just like, oh, I'm gonna, well, what about making some bread out of the rocks, right? Like this is actually something that's tied very deeply to the story of God's people, to the, the very specific story that Jesus is acting out here, right? Hey, Jesus, when God takes people into the wilderness, God provides them with bread. So you're God, why don't you just make yourself some bread, right? It's, 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 uh, it's one of those things that can be twisted pretty easily to seem like it is in line with what God wants for Jesus. And then Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, so Jesus rejects that and says, no, when when God's ready to feed me, God will feed me, right? So then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scripture says he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold, up, uh, hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Okay, so again, another one where uh, the devil's like, well, why don't you just, you know, just do this? And Jesus says, no. And so then finally, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. When I, when I imagined this, and I actually, um, I did a writing exercise a few years ago that I'll post uh, on our social medias later this week, but I tried to imagine like why this would be so tempting to Jesus, right? What, why, why if Jesus, uh, the devil takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all of the glory. And part of what I thought about was how Jesus is this uh, humble, you know, uh, we call him a, contra- a carpenter, he's like a better analogies, uh, we would think of him today as a contractor, right? A blue-collar guy, works with his hands, builds houses, like that's basically his thing, right? Uh, Has not ever traveled outside of his home country. At this point, has really never been to the capital city even, right? So he's he's a small-town, blue-collar guy, kind of from the backwoods, and now the devil is showing him all the kingdoms of the world, right? Um, You know, do you know who was, do you know what was happening in China in the first century? I don't, right? Uh, what, what, about, what about even like, you know, other countries in the Middle East, the Parthian Empire, 
right? Who, who was, uh, what, you know, what did the political situation in Africa look like in, in the first century? What about in the Americas? You know, like places Jesus didn't even know existed, right? And there's all these kingdoms, all these languages that he doesn't speak, all of these political intrigues that he doesn't understand, and yet he's supposed to be the Messiah, right? He's supposed to be the savior of all of this. And so the devil takes him up and he shows him all of them. The devil says, I can tell you, right? I can tell you how all this works. I can give you the keys to every one of these kingdoms. All you have to do is kneel down and worship me, right? Follow my way, not God's way. And I will, I will be your personal guide to saving all of these kingdoms in the world. It's such, a, uh, it's such a poisoned apple, right? It's, it looks like exactly what he was sent to do, and yet it comes at the cost of his soul. And so Jesus says, get out of here, Satan. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So then the devil went away, and the angels came, and they took care of Jesus. I am, I am staggered that after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, Jesus has the strength of spirit to resist uh, temptations that really got to the heart of who he is, the heart of what he's come to do, the heart of this very difficult vocation that God has sent him for. And yet, when he has those things handed to him on a silver platter, he is able to reject them and say, no, I know that the way that God has called me to is difficult, but I also know that if I will be faithful to God's way, God will be faithful to me. I am willing to embrace the boundaries that God has set in place and trust that when I adhere to those, uh, what is on the other side of that is flourishing, not just for me, but for everyone. So again, I, what we see in, in the temptation narratives when Jesus rejects the devil's temptations is him settling into solidarity with all of humanity. And I think that's, uh, I, I, I am just, I'm staggered by his faithfulness there. And so I want us to consider that as we move towards our response time today, receiving communion together, offering these prayers to God. Uh, I want us to consider what our own uh, faithfulness looks like? Do we have a clear sense of what God's vocation for us is? Do we know what God is calling us to? Do we have a clear sense of the boundaries that God has put in place around us? Are we being faithful to those? Or are we rejecting God's way in favor of what, is, what we think is good for ourselves, right? And so that, that's really what the prayer of examine that I want to invite us into today is centered around, is uh, reflecting back on the year that's brought us here and considering uh, what faithfulness has looked like so far. And then again, considering the next 40 days that's ahead of us as we are in this Lenten journey right here at the start of it. Uh, is this going to be a time that we're going to choose by faith to trust the permissions and the prohibitions that God has put in front of us to trust that God's way really does lead us to life. Uh, and if not, what is standing in the way of that? What's standing in the way of our faithfulness to God? So um, before we receive communion together, I'm going to lead us in this prayer of examine, give you those questions, give you some space to reflect prayerfully on them. And then I'll pray for us all together and then we can receive communion together and then respond in song. So here's the first question I want you to consider. In this year so far, 
When has my work been focused on my own good? Now, what does tending and watching over, that first human vocation, right? What does that look like for me in the next six weeks? What is God calling me to? Now, where might I be tempted to resist God's work in my life in these next weeks? And finally, how can I make myself ready to say yes to God in these next weeks? Let's pray together. God, you have gathered us today that we might see uh, this first picture of our failure to trust you in the scriptures and and see uh, reflected for ourselves how often we too find it difficult to trust that your way truly does lead to life and flourishing. You have also brought us that we might see how your son Jesus faithfully rejected uh, sweet temptations that offered him an easier path than that of death on the cross, and yet how he rejected those and willingly embraced his suffering for the sake of all of us. We confess that that's scary for us, that it's difficult for us to imagine having that kind of faith, and yet you have shown us today that this is what truly leads to flourishing uh, and, and true peace, true shalom for all of us, not just a few of us. So we want that kind of faith. We want to be a church that has that kind of faith. So we approach your table this morning, and we bring with us all of our confusion and our anxieties and our fears and our doubts, and we offer those to you. 
In return, we receive these elements, and we pray that as we uh, consume them, they would be a spiritual food for us, that we might receive uh, the grace that we need to be your faithful church. Here at the beginning of this Lenten journey, we commit together today to open our spirits to you, that you might point out in us anything that offends you, so that as we move towards Good Friday and towards the resurrection beyond on Easter Sunday, that we might be whole that we might be a beautiful church that reflects your light everywhere in the world around us. We offer these prayers now and we approach your table in the name of your son, Jesus. The night Jesus was betrayed, this was the meal that he shared with his followers. It was, during that, uh, it was during that meal that he broke bread and gave it to them and said, this is my body broken for you, take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine. He said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink, and as we do, we remember Jesus' death until he returns. Uh, friends, as you're leaving today, I want to thank uh, the two groups I always thank every Sunday, our volunteers who uh, really commit a lot of time and energy to help us create this space where we can all worship together. And then, of course, those who are continuing to give here at Catalyst and uh, make that possible as well. And so, uh, again, we're just so grateful for all of you. We really appreciate uh, your faithfulness in those areas. And, uh, you know, if you're, uh, if you're wanting to start giving and not sure how, or wanting to start serving and not sure how, if you're in the building, of course, you can come up and uh, talk to me afterwards or in the, in the uh, YouTube. There's just, uh, links for both of those, how to get involved in both ways down below the video as well. But again, I just want to say thank you to everyone who's doing that. Uh, now as you're going, this, you know, this is the beginning of our Lenten journey, and so I wanted to assure you that we're going to continue to return to these questions of what faithfulness to God looks like throughout the next few weeks as we explore the next covenant. So next week, we're going to be looking at the covenant that God makes with Abram uh, to be a light to the world around us. We're going we're to explore what it looks like to reflect God's light to the world, and, and again, how we fail to do that, how Jesus was faithful in that regard, and then what it looks like for us to, to take that seriously during this season of Lent. So I'm really excited about next week. I'm really excited, honestly, about this, this whole series and this whole, this whole journey uh, together with us. So uh, I hope you are similarly excited and, and similarly being prayerful about what God's going to be doing in our midst, uh, both, again, inside of our, our, our own spirits and then also in our church community together as, as we do this journey together. If you'd stand, I'd like to uh, dismiss us with a blessing today. Uh, Catalyst, as you go, would you go into a world that God has called us to tend and to keep? Uh, go knowing that even when we are not faithful, God is faithful to us. And it's through God's faithfulness to us that we can find the grace that we need to be restored and renewed. Uh, go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we'll see you next week.